Welcome to Sedaris. There we go. <laughs> this, this is live action, so here we go. Turn the microphone on. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, would you turn with me to 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing in our series in the book of Peter. Um, again, just some opening remarks. Uh, these are strange times. These are hard times, and uh, we really do uh, need to be praying and interceding on behalf of all of those who are vulnerable, those who are most at risk from this virus, and, uh, and for those that are isolated. And um, be looking out for those people. Keep your eyes open. If you're one of those people, please, again, do not hesitate to reach out. The church is here for you. That's why we exist for moments like this um, more than any. We'll talk a little bit about that today. So what, 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 are, what is something we can do in this time when there's so much waiting? Well, one of the things we can do is we can read this book. This book has survived many plagues, many disasters, many crises, many wars. This book just seems to keep going. We just can't seem to get away from it. And it always parches our dry lips. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We need to be fed and to drink from the fountain of the word of God. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to continue to do what we always do, which is teach and preach from the word of God. So if you're there with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to unpack it, just like any other Sunday. So here we go. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. That's large three, small 18 says this for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray. This is a challenging, unique passage. Many people have wrestled with the meaning of this passage, but we know in every single word that you've put into your book, there is life, and so God, we ask you to help us extract that life now in the name of Jesus that we might use the power of these words to speak and move in us in this moment. May, may our time in the word today stir our affections for you so that you're the first thing that we think of in the morning and the last thing that we think of at night, that you might replace our other thoughts, our thoughts of anxiety and fear, that they might be replaced by the beautiful thought of your son, Jesus Christ. So that's what we pray now in the name of Jesus. May you connect us in a supernatural way in a way that reminds us that no matter how isolated we are, we are together, we are a family in Jesus Christ. Do that right now through the power of this technology that you have given to us through this moment and this church scattered throughout this city on this Sunday morning. Do this, Father, for us. Connect us now through your word. Teach us. Give us life. Give us new breath. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, as I said in my prayer, this is a historically difficult passage. There's things in here that, what are we talking about? What, are we, what, what is Peter doing? And some people might just want to move by it because we don't know what it says. We don't know what it actually means. We don't know what he's actually saying happened after Jesus died. What did he do? But you know what? We don't do that because we know there's life. So we're going to actually 
look at this and see what, what we might be able to glean from it. I want to do three things this morning. The first is I want to try to ask the question, who are these spirits in prison that Jesus supposedly is proclaiming to after his death, before his resurrection? What? So that's number one. Two, I want to explain why knowing this information releases us from shame. So I think Peter's telling us this for a reason, to help us be released from shame. Third thing, I want to show you how this knowledge, this unique, strange knowledge that Peter decides to give to us, that he was given by Jesus and is now revealed to us, how this gives us hope and how that hope is tied to the sacrament of baptism. Okay? Those three things. You, and just to set it up, let me just say this. Um, those last two, shame and hope, they're actually contradictory. Shame makes you feel and makes you appear really small to the world. That's what shame does. It shrinks you, makes you small. Hope, on the other hand, actually builds you up and makes you appear and seem big. And in this time, in this moment, what we want as the people of God, what the city needs us to be is big, to, to actually carry with us the strength that they lack and to not fall into the shame that makes us small and ineffective and unhelpful to our city. So this is really important. And Peter's, I think, trying to do both in this passage, release us from shame and give us a kind of hope through reminding us, for those of us who have been baptized, what has happened to us. This is what we need. This is what our city need, needs in, in moments like these. So, first thing, what in the world does this passage teach us? <laughs> what actually happened now, the context of this passage, if you go, have to go back a couple weeks now, remember when Ryan was talking about the people um, in the cities where this letter was circulating, because Peter wrote this to a bunch of, of churches and it was passed around, these people were a small sect, they were sort of nobodies, um, they were a minority of minorities, and they were being persecuted and mocked and um, suffering for being a Christian. And so... This is, this is who he's writing to. And um, he goes into then this strange sort of parentheses where he talks about Christ. He suffered, just like you're suffering. He suffered, but he didn't stay suffering after he suffered on the cross. It says he went and he proclaimed something to the Spirit's in prison. And then it goes on to say, because they formerly did not obey, apparently he's talking to these spirits that did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So scholars, theologians, pastors have, have one who are these spirits in prison? Is this text saying that Jesus literally, in the Spirit, descended into hell between the time of the cross and the resurrection, and he did some preaching? Now, maybe in a couple weeks ago, if you did your house church, you recited the Apostles' Creed, and in the Apostles' Creed, it actually says this. It says, in part, Jesus was crucified, died, and buried, and was buried, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. So for thousands of years, people in the church have been reciting together the Apostles' Creed in which they seem to affirm that, that he descended into hell. Is that what happened? And, and if you do a study of the Apostles' Creed, you actually realize that little phrase, he descended into hell, was added hundreds of years after the original creed was written. They don't have that phrase. So, so it was added in later on, and it stuck. 
And the place uh, that theologians go to to see why it was shoehorned in was 1 Peter 3, 19. That seems to teach this idea that Jesus went and preached to those in hell. So is that what happened? Others will take this passage and they will use it to say, see, those who die have a second chance to hear the gospel and believe and be saved. This is sometimes called post-mortem salvation. Is that what this passage is teaching? That people have a second chance to believe? I don't think so, but I'm not going to get into those weeds today. I might actually get into those weeds next week. Teaser. I might get into those weeds next week because there's a second passage in chapter 4 that seems to hint at a similar thing, this idea of post-mortem evangelism. You know, many uh, sects or cults within Christianity even pray for the dead. Should we be doing that? So, not going to answer it today, but I just want you to, say, just to see how confusing this text has been over the years and all the ways that it has been used. So who are they? Who are the spirits in prison that Peter refers to? Here are five of the most popular explanations. I'm going to give you five. I'm not going to explain detail all of them, but I want to tell them to you. I'm going to tell you the ones that I think the top, I'm going to tell you the top two, because I don't think any of us know for sure, okay? Here are the five. This text could be saying that Jesus was the preacher, and he went in that moment after the cross, after his death, and he preached to all the living saints, or sorry, all, not all the saints, all the souls of all dead humans who are awaiting the last final judgment in hell. Okay? So that's what Jesus did. He went and he preached to them. So that's option number one. Option number two, Jesus as the preacher went and just preached to the faithful Old Testament saints who had been waiting in what the Jews called Sheol, which is sort of like a, a holding pattern. Um, it's, it's kind of the Jewish idea of the underworld, but it's not really the full Christian idea of hell. It's, it's sort of this waiting period, and they're waiting for the Messiah to come. They had been faithful in the past, and Jesus is now coming to proclaim to them that now they will get to be freed when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He says, I'm about to rise from the dead. I'm going to bring you with me, and we are going to go and be in the presence of God the Father. So they had been waiting, and because of the substitutionary death of Jesus, now it was possible for them to be released from this prison and go to be in the presence of God, which is what they've always desired. So that's option number two. Option number three, Jesus is a preacher, and he's preaching to those in purgatory. So would be the Catholic view of this text is that there is this middle place that people go after they die called purgatory. They, they believe, but they haven't done quite enough, and so they have a period of time called purgatory, and Jesus went to preach to those people to tell them the work had been done. That's the Catholic view. Fourth view is actually not that Jesus was the preacher that Peter's talking about, but Noah is the preacher, and he's talking about in the spirit, meaning back in the day of Noah, before the flood, the Spirit of Christ came and filled, just like all the prophets of the Old Testament, Noah, to preach to those who disobeyed God, to give them an opportunity to repent. They did not repent, but he's referring back to a past time in which, in the Spirit of Christ, Noah preached to the people. And the fifth option is that Jesus is not so much a preacher, but a proclaimer, and who he's proclaiming to is demonic spiritual beings. Demonic spiritual beings, these would be fallen angels, who once had the job of glorifying God, being in the presence of God, worshiping God, but chose to disobey God and fell from grace. And their falling from grace is related to this strange passage in Genesis chapter 6 that precedes the fall, or sorry, the flood, in which somehow 
the spiritual beings interacted with humanity in a way that they weren't supposed to, which is sort of the climax of the fallenness of the world that led to the flood. And so Jesus goes to proclaim to them what he has done and that he has victory. Okay? These demonic spiritual beings were in prison awaiting the final judgment in which the book of Revelation says they will be cast into the lake of fire along with the devil himself. Okay, so what's the best answer of those five? I'm not going to pick one because I don't want to be arrogant because many have struggled to know. But here's what I lean toward, toward option four and option five. So in the fourth option, Peter then would be referring to this historically ancient moment in which the real person of Noah was, as I said, inspired by the Spirit of Christ to preach boldly and courageously to those whose hearts were hard. They would not repent from their evil ways, and so they were ultimately seen as enslaved to their sins. So when he says prisoners... Spirits would be speaking to the full person, which sometimes Peter does. Spirits, the whole persons, were enslaved to their sin. And even though Noah preached to them in the spirit of Christ, God was trying to give them a way through, just like he had given to Noah. They ultimately did not turn and ask for forgiveness. So, If this is the case, essentially what you could uh, glean from this, why would Peter bring this up? Here's what he's saying. Noah and his family were a small minority as well. A minority who were essentially mocked by all the other people around them for building this ark in the middle of the desert. Just imagine that scene. And Peter is saying, you're not the first to go through this because the Christians of his day were being mocked, were being shamed for believing that they were hearing from God uniquely when everyone else wasn't. The people in Noah's day would have said things like this, I guess you're the only tiny little family that hears from God. These are the same things that Peter's audience would have been hearing. So you could see then, this makes sense in the context, why he would bring up this ancient story of Noah preaching in the spirit of Christ and people not listening and Noah being shamed for it, but ultimately vindicated when the rain came. Okay, so that's number four. Number five, similarly, I think, I think both of these options fit what I think Peter's trying to do in a larger context. He's referring, if, if option five is correct, he's actually then referring to a historically present moment that, that's just happened, that Jesus has just told him about, in which Jesus, after his body had died on the cross, went in the spirit to some place in which these demonic beings are being cooped up, awaiting final judgment, and Jesus has gone there to proclaim to them that it is finished, that all the things that God had promised in the past, that they probably mocked themselves. Part of their their rebellion was mocking God, mocking his plan, going to do things their own way, that Jesus goes to them and says, it took a while, but it is finished. And your fate is sealed by my victory on the cross. And I'm about to be lifted up and raised up above every angelic being, above every principality, above every power. They're actually going to be put, what does the last verse of this passage say? Beneath Jesus. So perhaps that's it. And scholars look at this, and one of the reasons they wonder this is because Peter could have used the word 
evangelizo, to make it clear, it's a Greek word that means to go proclaim good news. Jesus would say that when he was going around. He says, I've come to bring good news. So we get the, the term evangelism. But he doesn't. He uses another word that also means preach, but it could mean proclaim. Kerisu. And that is a word that doesn't necessarily mean good news. could mean bad news. It's used both ways. It just means to preach or proclaim news. Oftentimes it is used for preaching the good news. But scholars say, well, he could have made it really clear that what, whoever was play, proclaiming, they were proclaiming good news, but they didn't. They left it very open to interpretation. And perhaps what he's doing is actually just proclaiming the finished work. So although I'm not landing on one of these, I think these two fit with the overall flow of Peter, which is he's trying to encourage and remind these people who are experiencing shame, being mocked, being persecuted, trying to show them that Christ, in every way, has experienced what they've experienced. And in every way, at the end, he comes out victorious. So this is the thrust of of Peter's argument and his encouragement in the entire letter. It goes something like this. No matter, no matter what you're currently going through, no matter what it is, whether it's fear, shame, hopelessness, whatever it may be, it's temporary. It, it, it's momentary. It will not last. Your current fill-in-the-blank will not last. Jesus experienced shame. For him it was shame. But his shame did not last. And if it didn't last for Jesus, it won't last for those who follow him. So maybe in these days, maybe in these moments, maybe you're feeling shame. Maybe, maybe you're feeling the mockery Maybe people are saying to you, where is your God now? Why do you trust a God who would let this happen? Where is God in this pandemic? Peter has something to remind you. He has something to remind you. So that's what I want to do next. I want to do a little shame jam. Let's talk about shame. Let's talk about this thing that Jesus experienced. Imagine this. The Son of God, who humbled himself to come in the flesh, he experienced shame. He predicted his own shame. In Luke 31 to 34, it says this. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, Quote, see what we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. That's the disciples. This saying was hidden from them. They could not grasp what was said. So Jesus, even before he, he knew what he was walking into, when he left heaven, he knew what he was walking into. When he went to Jerusalem, he knew what he was walking into, and that was shame and mockery, even though he was God in the flesh. So he predicted it. He knew it was coming. And then there was the actual shame that led up to his crucifixion. Jesus experienced ridicule and shame throughout his public ministry, but it was heightened and focused in this last moment where leaders, the elites, they provoked the people against him, and he experienced so much shame. He was flogged and he was spit upon by Roman soldiers, meant to shame him. They clothed him in purple cloak, to mock his claims at being royal, to shame him. 
They twisted together a crown of thorns, placed it on his head, and put him in front of the people and said, Hail, the king of the Jews, to shame him. They made him carry his own cross to Calvary. And he didn't make it. And they did that to shame him. They they inscribed a charge above his head as he hung on the cross. They nailed a little placard which said, the king of the Jews meant to shame him. Then while he was on the cross, they jeered. Those who were passing by, they wagged their heads at him and said, Ah, ha ha, you who would destroy our temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself, call down the angels to mock him, to shame him. Then the soldiers They began to mock. They came up to him and offered him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself to shame him. Then the Jewish religious elite, they came to him and they mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe. They said this to shame him. So every kind of person shaming Jesus, everyone that you could think of as he hung there on a tree, and that wasn't even the worst of the shame. The worst of the shame came from knowing that God had cursed him. There was no greater shame for any Jewish person than to be hung from a tree. We sang that song just now. One hanging from a tree. That was the ultimate curse of God. If you went back and looked at the Old Testament law and the book of Deuteronomy at the beginning of your Bible, you'd find this verse. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but, he shall, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is a cursed by God. It was the greatest dishonor to die in that way, the way that Jesus willingly walked into. God came in the flesh in that time in human history where this hanging on a piece of wood was a common execution tactic. He knew exactly what he was doing. He came to take on the shame of the world. And that's what he experienced on that cross as he hung there. And everyone who heard the story of how he died immediately would think of Deuteronomy 21 and the shame related, the dishonor related with that way of dying. That's why the Apostle Paul, who also wrote a letter to a church in in a similar part of the world, to the church in Galatia, he wrote this, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, for us, for it is ris- written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree, so that Jesus Christ, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's most of us here. That's why he took on the curse, so that we might receive, Galatians 13 finishes, receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ knowingly walked into the shame set before him. And if Peter is referring here to what we think he might be referring to here, he's reminding us that even though Jesus took on that shame, in this moment, if you take the fifth explanation, after dying, he, he went and he proclaimed to those spirits who questioned his authority, who questioned his power, who questioned his plan long ago and rebelled against him. He's showing them this shame 
was all part of my plan. All of it. All of it. All the shame is now turned on itself, reversed, and used, and is the power of God. That's God's plan. That's God's love. That's his mercy. That's his grace and his justice, and it flowed through him taking on the greatest of shame. Peter wants to remind us of that. Why? Because he knows that we will face it too. There's no way around it. There's no avoiding it. To walk the way of Jesus is to walk, at times, the way of shame. So to know Christ's shame, to know what he walked through, is the beginning, and then we must choose to follow. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Same thing Peter says. Seated now at the right hand, and all those who shamed him sit underneath and are subject to him. And Hebrews 12 says, this is the race that I'm calling you to run. This is what we must do. So what about us now? Are we willing to do it? No matter the level of shame cast upon us, can we trust in Jesus? No matter what we might be mocked for or ridiculed for, or if trusting in God feels like a bad idea or strange or confusing to us, can we be like Noah and continue to move forward and do the strange things that God asks us to do in every moment, knowing that one day we will be vindicated? So here's a great thing always to think about. Back to the Future. Great movie. If, if you don't know what that is, look it up. Uh, Michael J. Fox, fantastic actor, very tall, um, very good looking. Uh, great movie. Doc Brown. Come on, guys, you, you know what I'm talking about? Give me some light. Okay, so Back to the Future, and in Back to the Future, it's like it sounds, time travel, Imagine you had your own DeLorean, which is a very strange, at one time, expensive car, but you look at it now and you're wondering, why, why was that ever a luxury car? Very cool doors. But say you had a DeLorean and you could go all the way back in time. That's what Peter's wanting to, he's wanting to take, take you on time travel here. That's why he puts it in here. And he says, hop in the DeLorean, go all the, ba- all the way back, back to the time of the flood, and you could watch how people rejected God and shamed Noah And the angels rebelled. They became demonic. Go back and watch that. Watch that. And then hop back in your DeLorean and go back to the future, but not all the way to the future. Go back to the time of Jesus and watch Jesus, who was shamed and mocked for following the way of God, follow him and watch him go up to Calvary's cross, watch him hang on that tree like we just talked about and be mocked and killed and stripped naked and cursed by God apparently. Watch that. And then watch him rise from the dead. Now imagine you could do that and then hop back in the DeLorean and go back to the future, but today. And you... See us now, in this moment, in, in this pandemic. Are you there in the DeLorean? Are you, are you watching us? Do you see the shame that is placed upon you if you trust God to save you now? Perhaps the shame that's placed on you when, when you're asked, where is God in this? 
Maybe it's the shame you place on yourself when you start to think honestly like, why am I trusting a God who says he's good and powerful, yet he allows this to happen in his world? Wherever it comes from. And then hop back into the DeLorean and go all the way to the future, Peter says. Go all the way to the end of history. And you know what you'll see there? You'll see Jesus returned. You'll see him sitting on his throne. You'll see every authority, every spiritual being, every angelic being, everyone who mocked God sitting there before the judgment seat of Jesus. And think about in that moment all those other places that you have been. And think now how great it is to trust in Jesus. That's what, that's what Peter wants us to do. I think that's why he tells us these strange things that we would not otherwise know about. He wants us to see that, that we need the revelation of the word of God to press through the shame that we feel. Because we might let shame defeat us. We might let shame disarm us. We might let shame divide us. But we don't have to because we've been given this revelation. We, we know what Jesus presented to those angels who mocked him and rebelled against him. Uh, we, we know what Jesus did through Noah when he built an ark in the middle of the desert. That his promises and his words did not return void. That Noah was saved. And, and we know that one day we will all experience a resurrection if we're tied to him because we've seen Jesus Risen from the dead. You see, this is what Peter's trying. He's reminding us. Listen, it's hard to remember these things in hard times. It was hard for me. I forgot these things two weeks ago, and then this week I was reminded. Why? Because I was in the Word of God preparing a sermon. Now I'm lucky. I, I, I have to do this. This is my job. But you can get in this Word and be reminded of the revelation that God has given you, of what he's up to and what he's done. You can hop in the DeLorean and see how he's worked over history, that nothing has separated his people from him, that in this life or the next, he will rescue. So Peter's saying, it will happen. You will be shamed, particularly in times of trial, in hard moments, when people ask, where is your God? It happened to Jesus. Where is your God now? Save yourself. It will happen to us, Peter says. So you can, there's no way around it. But just remember that's not real shame. Because that's shame flowing and rooted in a lack of knowledge about who God is and what his ultimate plans are and what he's already done and what he's already proclaimed. Thank God we have a revelation of, of this here. And this brings me to my last, last point. How does this knowledge that releases us from the shame that we might feel, how does it actually give us hope? And how is that hope tied to the sacrament of baptism? This is super fun. Watch this. Watch this. Look, look at the text again with me. Starting in verse 21, he says, Now, baptism which corresponds to this, and the this is Noah being saved in the ark, baptism now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and the powers having been subjected to him. Now, Here's what he's not saying, because this is clear everywhere in Scripture. Baptism, the physical act of it, does not save you. But it's a symbolic act of a spiritual reality in which when we attach ourselves to Jesus, we are attaching ourselves to the ark, okay? To the ark that brings us through. Now, I just want to make that clear, that the physical act, so like, say you die before you've ever been baptized, does that mean you're screwed? No. You're fine. <laughs> because it's the spiritual reality 
that's important, and then it's ceremonialized or redramatized or revitalized through the sacrament or the practice of baptism. We'll be doing that this summer. If, if you're interested in baptism, email us. We would love for you to get to experience this reality because there's something powerful in it, even though it, baptism itself does not save you. It's the spiritual baptism that saves you. But let me tell you this. If you're like me, you've been thinking about death a lot in 2020, right? I've been thinking about it a lot. There's a lot of things that have reminded me of my mortality. It's been a rough year. Now, do you ever think about the worst way to die? I do. Maybe that makes me morbid. I don't know. But I think about it. And for me, it would be drowning. The idea of drowning for me is the worst way to die. In these times right now, this pandemic, um, to me, it's, it's almost like a weird kind of analogy for drowning. Especially when, when, when we're out in public, it feels, it can feel like every breath that you take is is like a conspiracy against your life as you allow death to seep in. Every day that you're isolated, that the light of community, the hope of community and connection is is taken away from you, it can feel like you're sinking deeper into the abyss. So it feels like for me. Um... Do you feel that? Do you, do you feel the, this, it's a weird, it's a weird time. It's a strange time. And it, it makes me think of drowning. It makes me want to scream, but then I don't want to scream because I don't know if I have the air to spare. Do you feel that? Do you feel like you're drowning in fear and anxiety? Do you feel like you're drowning in the media, messaging, all of it, what can I believe, what's true, what's false? Do you feel like you're drowning in loneliness or drowning in the unknown or drowning in the claustrophobia of quarantine? Do you feel that? Let me, some of you feel that. Peter has a message for you today. He says, like Noah, you can survive the flood. Peter says, just as the waters of judgment swelled up against the the people of Noah's day, just like they swelled up and the rain kept coming and it never stopped, you too can have an ark. Now it's going to look different, this flood, in in every nation and every historical moment, but everyone in their life feels this, like it just won't stop. The deluge keeps coming. It never subsides. Eventually you feel as though you're drowning. You'll feel as though it will kill you, and it will, unless you trust in Jesus, is what Peter says. Unless you prepare for the flood by considering the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting in the gospel of Jesus' life, giving your life to Jesus and say, you take it, you own it, it's yours, then when the flood comes. Your life will be spared. Now, maybe not this body, because even Jesus' body was not spared. But you will not remain in the grave. He will raise you up just as he was raised up. He will snatch you out of the water. That's what he's promising. That's what Peter's talking about. So, when I went through the darkest days in my life, When my sister died, I felt like I was drowning. And there was this song, um, and actually we played it at the very beginning of the service while we were waiting for the service to start. It's by uh, an artist called Matt Kearney called All I Need, All I Need. And this ministered to my soul. I just listened to it over and over again in the days and the weeks and the months after my sister's death. And there's a line in there, and this line stuck with me, says this, I'm holding on to you holding on to me. So I can't hold on anymore 
But what I hold on to is the fact that I know you're always holding on to me. That's how it felt. I felt like I was drowning, but I was holding on to the fact that God himself, through Jesus Christ, never lets me go. God promises not one will slip out of Christ's hand. That's what Peter's saying here. Just like Noah, your baptism, which, which again is spiritual, but we, we memorialize it in the ceremony, the celebration. It's this living dramatization of this very unique Christian story in which we dunk somebody under the water and we lift them up out of the water. Buried with Christ in baptism, we say, raised with Christ to walk with newness of life. And it's this amazing Christian story that's, that's different than every other human story. Because, you see, every human story includes water. The ancient people in particular, water equaled death. We don't see it like that anymore, but that's the way people thought of water. Water equals death. And every human story has the first act of the ceremony of baptism. Every human story, we are all plunged into the water. Everyone. No one escapes that. Everyone, because of sin and brokenness and disease and tragedy, is forced underneath the water, is pushed underneath the water. All of us. The water exists for all of us. Every human being experiences this first act of baptism. But for Christians, there's a second act. Because there was a second act for Jesus. You see, for Christians, there's also the resurrection, the coming out of water. He doesn't leave us under the water, but he grabs us out. He grabs hold of us. We don't grab him. He reaches in and grabs us and pulls us out of the water. Just like he pulled Noah and his family out of the water. That's the hope. That's what Peter's, he wants us to see this. He says, the one thing that's different for you Christians, no matter how hard it gets, is that you won't stay under the water. Now, I've always said this, when we do baptism, we should keep people down just a little bit longer so they feel it. (laughs) They feel the terror that the rest of the world feels, but they always get pulled up in this life or the next. And so, That's the beauty. And Peter's saying, don't forget that. The shame you're feeling, the mockery, the trials, the tribulations, the suffering, don't forget that God will reach down and has reached down in Christ as deep as you've gone, even beyond the grave. Jesus went all the way down into death, and he came out. (laughs) And you do too. I started by telling you that Hebrews 12, 2 gives us an account of the race. To be like Jesus who is despised. And then a great next verse starts with one of the greatest words in the English language. Consider. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and then he quotes proverbs 3 He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is the discipline, it is for discipline that you have to endure. I'm not saying that this pestilence is specifically sent as discipline from the Lord, but I do know this, that the way of this war of fallen biology is in part the overarching discipline of God. God gives us just enough to remind us that this is not the world he wants. This is not the world he created. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And times like this remind us of it. 
Our collective sin has caused the world to be like this. But God in his steadfast love meets his children right where they are in the middle of it. And he says, I want to teach you something in this. I want this pain to be disciplined to make you stronger. To transform you into the image of your big brother Jesus. This is what I want. So when you persevere, when you press into God in these moments... This discipline becomes actually a great act of joy and love. When you choose to worship and trust rather than grumble against God in this moment, you will grow. You will become more and more mature in Christ because God uses these things to build us up. When you choose to lament and confess your sin and confess your need for God to save and to rescue you from the flood in this moment, he will build you up. You will grow. You will mature. And so if somebody had an underwater camera then in this moment, and we're all feeling like we're under the water right now, we're all feeling it, but if somebody had an underwater camera, instead of the sheer terror on the face of those underwater, because we're all underwater, when the camera turns and points to the Christians, there will be this, this weird, sweet joy, knowing that this is temporary, that God will raise us up, that he will not leave us to drown, that there is life after this. And so our faces, though wet, though worn, though tired, will represent this knowledge, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer for our church, that we might grow, that we might breathe the fresh air of Scripture and the gospel and the hope and the goodness of God in these hard times, that we might remember our frailty and our dependence don't, don't, don't let these hard times pass you. Maybe God is using this hard time to wake you up to the reality that you've been trusting in yourself and that you think that you're strong enough and you're reminded now in this moment that you're not. Praise God. Turn to him and ask him to hold you when you can't hold on anymore. This could be the grace of God working in your life. Give your life to him now. Let him raise you up and give you hope no matter how dark this day feels. Cling to Jesus. Cling to your Savior. Cry out for him in this moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these strange words from our brother in Christ, the Apostle Peter, who himself was drowning with disbelief, drowning with confusion, when you hung from that cross, you seemed to be cursed by God, and he denied you three times again and again and again. He shamed you, but you forgave him. God, for, for, for any of us right now in our church who are watching online, God, who in this time have been overwhelmed by the shame and have maybe turned their back on you and have denied you in this moment, God, Help them to know that just like Peter, you're there saying, do you love me? Come back to me. God, I pray that they would come back. I pray that we would find life through this word, that we'd find life through this worship we're about to have together. God, that, that you'd connect us in powerful ways and that you'd remind us that you are God of life not death, that you are a God of life and not death, that you are a God of life. Bring us to life right now in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.